We get them. All right. Yeah, I do my thing. No matter what they say, can't be me, man. Can't tell me what's hot, that's just me saying. Flow crazy, but this music keeping me sane. Sometimes I lose control. And these times I find my soul. So when it's time to get it, just get it, then go. I said get it, so get it. Welcome to the Notice to Perform podcast, episode one. And today my guest is one of my favorite people. He is a highly accomplished corporate executive rising to the position of president of the $1.5 billion company, C.R. Lawrence, who is the leading provider of architectural hardware with over 1,300 employees operating in 30 locations all over the world, over $500 million in annual sales. He is one of the smartest, most disciplined people I know, a family man, and someone that I definitely admire and look up to. Uh, my first client ever, and now a great friend and mentor. I'm trying to say that he is a boss and a baller, people. Uh, Mr. Artie Felis. What's up, Artie? What's going on, Neil? How are you, buddy? Doing well. Thank you for uh, coming on first episode of uh, Notice to Perform podcast. I'm honored to be here, man. I am. This is nice. Cool, man. Well, this is a business slash real estate podcast. Okay. And so uh, I know you pretty well, but my, my viewers and my audience don't know you. So I want to start by sort of getting your story from the beginning. And then, uh, you know, we'll get into business and real estate. Is that cool? Let's do it. All right. So um, let's see here. You are from the San Bernardino area, correct? Yep. San Bernardino. Cool. Is that just a county or a city? Well, it's it's both. It's the nine oh nine. Okay, right? the nine oh nine. I love 909. it. Nine oh nine. in the area code. I'll tell you, growing up there, we would call it. I could call it today. The armpit of Southern California. Okay, but I can only call it that because I'm from there. Now, okay. if you say it's the armpit, I'll get upset. Okay, got it. It's San Bernardino. It's where I grew up. It's a great place. Let me tell you. Okay, um, growing up, what what was it like growing up in San Bernardino? It's is it. The city is it? Is it the sticks? What, what is it like? I grew up in in Highland, so it's on the. I guess it would be the the east part of the San Bernardino Valley. <clears throat> Let's say close to Redlands. Okay. Um, and you know, look, very. Um, you know, growing up there, of course, from a from a climate perspective, it was hot in the summers, kind of cool in the winters. On the foothill of the mountains, so. We could go skiing, uh, whatever, snowboarding at the time. There was no snowboarding, but we could go up to, to the Snow Valley or Summit, really nice. Um, but, you know, growing up, it was very kind of middle class, just really good. It actually was a great place to grow up and still a great place now. Okay, yeah. So that was kind of my next question. So you, you had sort of like a middle class lifestyle experience growing up. Um, I would say... Yeah, middle class to maybe, let's say, entry level to okay, middle yeah. class. We didn't we didn't have much growing up um, because my my father, he worked a couple jobs, uh, had a gas station and then a, a garage that that he actually started. I think back in seventy four, I think, is when uh, he opened up the garage. You know, fixing cars and stuff. So. You know, I'll, I'll be candid. Growing up, didn't know my dad very much because well, I knew him, but he was always working two or three jobs, working hard to provide for the family. Uh, you know, growing up, I was the youngest of three boys, 
which is always a challenge, you know, I think from, I was just sharing this with somebody about the, you know, the whole concept of grit and you eat what you kill. I was the youngest of three boys, so I had to kind of make it on my own, so to speak. For sure. And um, yeah, if I were to look back at my, my childhood, and I've given this a lot of thought, you know, about, you know, and it's going to apply to, to, to your kids as well as you think about them growing up. Um, I didn't have a lot growing up. So I, what I did, I did on my own with my parents' love and support. And the support was encouragement, right? It wasn't um, love, support. Here, let's go to this help. Let's go do that. Let's go do that. And I kind of had to weave that that path myself. Got you. Got you. Okay. So uh, you are first generation American, right? Correct. So uh, tell me about the story of your parents coming to America, immigrating to America. <laughs> well, my dad came. It's it. it that's also another really kind of interesting story. Uh, my both my parents are from Greece. Um, my dad came in 1951 from Greece. He was, I think at the time, 15 years old. So you can imagine taking a, a child and basically not putting him on a plane, but putting him on a boat and having a sign around his neck, basically because he didn't speak any English, who he was and where he was going. And he ultimately made it to, um, to New Jersey and then ultimately to, to San Bernardino to, to live with his, his aunt. And the reason he went, uh, because there was just total poverty. This was right after World War II. So imagine the devastation from the war, um, a lot of poverty, and there was an opportunity. My great aunt, um, she was, if you will, sponsoring family to, to come to the States and, um, you know, my dad had the, the fortunate opportunity to come do that. So he came here he, uh, as, a, as a kid and uh, went to high school. And he went from high school. He went to go to college. He was smart enough to go to college. Uh -huh. But his uncle at the time said, hey, I can't afford to send my own kids to college. How am I going to send you? Yeah. So he, he went into the Navy and uh, he did that, and very proud of that. He was on the, on the Constellation. He did that for four years. And then after he was uh, in the Navy, he'd finished all that, it was time to get married. And back then, you know, we're, we're very much like you're in the Indian community. We're very tight-knit, so yes. he had to go find a nice Greek woman. All right. So he went back to Greece. Nice. Hooked up with his brother. His brother said, you know, I, I think there's a nice lady a couple towns over who's available. <laughs> so they went there. They met. And I think uh, like a week later, they were married. And a week after that, my, my dad and my mom were on a boat wow. to the U.S. And that was, you know, if anything, that was, and that was 1963. That was total shock for my mom. She had never... I mean, we, we tell these stories, as she told me before she passed, about, you know, how, how scared she was coming. She had never kissed a boy before. She had never anything. And here's my dad and, you know, it, the, the whole relationship. So, uh, and they came together and they, they, this is one of those stories. They got to the U.S. My dad had $2 in his pocket. 
had to borrow some money to make it to uh, to San Bernardino. They drove. And, and your uh, dad already had established himself in San Bernardino by then? Or was he still in Jersey? He was, no. He had established himself, you know, working as a mechanic. Okay. And he was working with um, some, some family friends. Not not a whole bunch of you know he, he wasn't let's say rooted but he was in San Bernardino. Okay. He got back and he you know I think when they first got back he was working, I think he had two or three jobs. One was at a restaurant, another one was at a maybe a uh, working as a mechanic. I mean he, he was doing a little bit of everything to stay make ends meet. Was there a, a Greek community in San Bernardino? Oh at yeah. That? Okay, that's good. Yeah, so. and that was the that was the an anchor right. So he went and lived with my aunt and. And their family, but there also was a, a Greek community. And that was a very, very important part of our upbringing. upbringing. Yeah. That's uh, similar to w- how Indians do it as well. Yeah. You know, it's uh, very helpful to have community right. when you're new. Absolutely. Cool, cool. Okay. And then uh, did you go to the same high school as your dad by chance? No, he went to what's called Pacific High School. I went to a, a, a private Catholic high school called Aquinas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So then you had two older brothers and you kind of had to get in where you fit in a little bit. Right. Yeah. And then um, what were you like in high school? I, I talked to Kathy before coming here and <laughs> tried to get a little you know, background information on on you to make this a little better. But she she mentioned that you were a little bit of a troublemaker in high school. But at the same time, you still handled your business like you, <laughs> you know, you got good grades. But you still were were mischievous of, of some kind. So, like, what what was high school like for you? High school, I mean, it was it was a great four years, and it really started with you know I made some really good friends, and and of course it helped that I had two older brothers. When I was a freshman, my next older brother was a sophomore, and I think my oldest brother was a, a junior or maybe a senior junior. I think so. Having that helped, but I just really had really good friends. I enjoyed high school. I'm. I tend to not be. Um, I tend to be curious, more so than identifying with something. So because of that, I really wanted to get the most out of high school, the most out of people, and not not when I say most out of people, most out of personalities. I'm drawn to whatever it might be. I'm I'm just naturally curious. So it was a great opportunity to meet people. Um, friends that I, I, I still stay in touch with as, awesome. as best I can today. So, um, you know, the mischievous part of me, yeah, I did have a bit of a mischievous part of me in high school um, that I probably don't want to share on the air. Fair enough. But, uh, you know, the good news is I never got involved in drugs or anything like that. It was just just kind of doing, um, you know, uh, silly stuff to <laughs> in some of the classes that, you know, I probably uh, – you know, maybe I'll share one story. I don't know if I should or not, but yeah, share one. I'll share one. Um, here's a here's one that I did, and uh, don't try this at home. <laughs> it was in one of my. I think it was it, again. It's a Catholic um, high school. So two. Well, I could go on. This could be a whole podcast. Okay, on, <laughs> it's just one on though. The, just one. Just one. Okay, let me see which one do I want to pick. I'll pick this one. It's it's, it's better than the other one. Um, so the, we were watching a, uh, you know, back then there were tube TVs and VCRs. So the VCR and the TV roller comes in 
in one of my classes, and we were watching like Francis of Assisi, who was a saint, I believe, in the in the Catholic faith. Um, and I, I I recognized that the TV was the same model as my best friend Sean's TV. Okay. So I offered to Sean to borrow his remote control so that I can make the TV look as if it was possessed. <laughs> so poor thing. I forget the teacher's name, but <laughs> she would walk up to it and I would crank up the volume. Yeah. And then she would turn it down thinking it's broken. Yeah. And then I would make it mute, then unmute, then I would turn it off and turn it on. Okay, got you. And I had the remote in my backpack. So <laughs> <laughs> looking back at it, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty funny because the poor thing really thought it was possessed. Man, high school teachers put up with a lot, man. Let me tell you something. Um, she did on that one. But <laughs> overall, I got to tell you, I had a great relationship with my, my teachers as well. Um, I, I did. I, I'm, I'm competitive by nature, so... Um, but I hold the standard to myself. I like to say for me in that regard to describe when I say competitive, um, it would be more competitive like you would align it to golf. I'm playing against myself. So I, I want good grades. I want to succeed for me and, and see how far I can stretch myself. And do I feel satisfied with what I'm doing? Am, am I making an impact? Am I you know, getting the, the result. Am I learning? Am I this and I'm that? So that, that was really it. And doing so, I had great relationships with my teachers too. So in high school and going to college, you know, is that sort of what kept you on the ball, just wanting to basically be your best self? Or did you have like an end goal in mind that, you know, to get to, the, to this end point, I need to get these grades so I can get to this point? Or was it just, you didn't know where you wanted to go. You just knew you, you wanted to keep that standard for yourself. Um, I really didn't know where I wanted to go when I was in high school in terms of what university. And I think the reason for that perhaps was environment um, because my parents didn't go to college. So there was no dialogue about schools. Um, although, education if i were to look back growing up you know what were the important things that were around kind of the the dinner table would have been you know faith and family um and education those are probably the three things that um that we talked about a lot um but i didn't have that you know i, I didn't know anything about colleges really so it was whatever i picked up from my friends at school and kind of figuring that out but the the grades were more for me but I do, I did have, I, I would, I do also visualize a lot in terms of understanding where I'm going and, and where do I want to get to. And, and that, that visualization, I think, is very important. And I think at the time, too, I, I, I did want to, you know, have a career. I was starting to kind of formulate, okay, what do I want to do? And that, that was really important, that visualization. Okay. And then, so you ended up going to Notre Dame. Yes. And, uh. Graduating cum laude, right? Did mm -hmm. I say that right? Oh yeah, you got that. You okay, got that I, I ain't no cum laude, so that I don't know how to say all that. But okay, so how um, when you were at Notre Dame, at what point did you? I mean, you, you you're an accountant. You're a C, you are a CPA, right? I, not I don't practice anymore, but yeah, I, I am. I you guess, studied accounting, yeah, right? Accounting, okay, yeah, cool. but not only accounting. I mean, that was that was part of what I studied. Yeah, but that was my major. 
And you must have figured that out early because I see that you uh, finished undergrad in three years. No, it was in four years. Oh, it was in four years? Okay, oh, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. All right, so. No, I, I, I knew I, I was always good at math, other things that I, I'm, I'm not good at, but numbers don't confuse me. Um, so that kind of felt that that was, you know, somewhere I wanted to go. Um, and my older brother was studying accounting as well. And I'm like, you know, this kind of makes sense. And, um, but actually I was pretty close for my, to have minors at Notre Dame in, in philosophy and theology. I was just fascinated, not, not, and again, just for the nuance, it wasn't necessarily religion, but theology, Yeah, the study of religion. I thought it was just fascinating. And also philosophy. Maybe that was the Greek part of me and philosophy. But um, those were a lot of my electives were in that area. Um, and that's where I kind of really put my focus. And at Notre Dame, is that a Catholic school? It is. Okay, cool. It is, very much so. Did that play a part in selecting that school? Um, no, actually what played a part there, believe it or not, I didn't know much about the university. Uh, a family friend at, at my church in San Bernardino, he went there. I'm like, well, tell me about this school. I go, I don't, I don't know much about it. He goes, eh, you know, it's a good school. It's this. And he, he just didn't say much, but he talked me up enough to, to want to apply there. Gotcha. Did you get in anywhere else that was like a close, uh, tough decision? Or was it an easy decision? Uh, I got in. Yeah, I mean, I got into four or five other universities. I think that probably the bigger decision was I did have, um, and it was interesting, I did have, the, probably the biggest choice was um, for me, there, my dad, I remember talking to my dad about it, and I, I could have gone to some other locations. But when I told him about Notre Dame, he goes, do you want to go to Indiana? He goes, it's going to be so cold there. And then he said, and he, I remember him thinking about it. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, South Bend. Oh, Cousin Nick. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, Nick Jeeves lives there. You should go, you should go to school there. And, uh, and which meant that, and, and just to bring it full circle, Back in 1951, when my dad lived with my, my great aunt, with his aunt, um, summers, Nick Jeeves would spend summers, and they became like brothers in San Bernardino. So very, very close. And uh, I was able to spend Sundays with the Jeeves family, with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jeeves and their, their, their daughters. And we became like a family, so we get to go to church. And it was, it was really special. That's great. And, and I got to tell you, that was just, yeah, that was, you know, grounding for me just to be able to have that, that yeah. connection. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, then did you get, I mean, obviously you, you did well academically in school still. Um, then you, did you take an internship? How did you end up at your first job at BDO Seidman? Seidman, yeah, Seidman. yeah. So a couple things. One, I just, I, I want to make it kind of clear that um, I, I, I don't, the reason that I did well at Notre Dame and at Aquinas, it, I'm not, I'm not an incredibly smart person. I, I, it's just more of, of um, dedication and hard work. At the end of the day, you know, is your podcast notice to perform? How do yes. you perform, right? Yeah. It really, it, it really boils down to hard work and common sense. And in my regard, that's really what it was. I was at Notre Dame. I was on a first-name basis with everybody at the library, all the librarians. They were my friends because, you know, I would go and study. Yeah. And, you know, put and, – and part of that was, look, I knew how much school cost. 
So while I'm going to school, my brothers, my family are working at the shop turning wrenches. I'm not going to go there for that reason and, and not do what I'm supposed to do. Plus, I just wanted to succeed and wanted to get the most out of it. But it really just boils down to hard work. That's awesome that you were, <clears throat> excuse me, able to have that uh, perspective, you know, yeah. and realize, you know, what, uh, your purpose being there in school, not wasting any time. Mm-hmm. So um, did you did you have fun at school? Or? Oh, I did big time. Okay, good. Same, you know, same kind of thing about, you know, making friends. And for me, the biggest challenge going away to school, that was intentional for me to want to get away from, to not get away from home, but be on my own. Because yeah. I'd never, you know, I, I, I grew up with my mother doing everything for me, breakfast, lunch, dinner, everything, which is great. Um, but I knew that I had to take that step in my own personal development to be able to live on my own and adjust to it. I got to tell you, my first semester at Notre Dame, I'm like, I wish this place would just go away. I want to go home. Yeah. Uh, but you get past that, and it really worked. Now, in terms of my my uh, how I got to you know my job at Seedman, my junior year uh, for that summer, I just started making phone calls and calling you know different accounting firms and saying, "Here, who's I am, and here who I am. Can do you guys have any internships?" And I called four or five, and the, when I called Seedman. Uh, the, the recruiter, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, great guy. He says, wow, you know what? You're from Notre Dame. This is great. I want to meet you. And I go, when do you want to meet? And I don't know if it was the same day or the, the next day, but I drove from San Bernardino to Beverly Hills where they were. We met, and, and that was my summer internship, which was just terrific. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was like uh, the summer of, like, what, junior going to senior year? Is that what you yep. just said? Okay, cool. Okay, and then they gave you an internship, and just so everybody knows, Seedman is a... Public accounting. Public accounting. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So you guys do accounting for, like, big companies, right? Exactly. Similar Audits, to the tax, big four type of deal? That kind of thing, yeah, okay, yeah. Gotcha. similar to that, yeah. Okay, so I know that you are... One of my favorite things about you that, uh, for me, it's like... <clears throat> I, I look at you as, like, this big boss figure, you know, because <laughs> I'm aware of boss your... Boss figure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm aware of your success, and, and I know you're a really hard worker, and I know that, uh, and that's the same thing with my dad. He, you know, never claimed to be the smartest guy. He just worked the hardest, you know. Um, and when when I found out about your routine, I was just, like, blown away because it's like some, some Kobe stuff, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, when I did you develop that? You wake up at 4.30 in the morning, right? Uh, four. Four in the morning. Yeah, it used that, to be 3.30. Now that, I'm sleeping into four. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, some Kobe stuff right there. So when did you develop that? I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a conscious decision on my part. It was just more just evolved over time. And I just found that I was more articulate and could work better in the morning. You know, so, um, and it's, it's not like... It, I, I just, you know, for clarity there also, it's not as if I only get four hours of sleep. It's just my schedule just shifts. Yeah. And what I find, you know, either working in public accounting or maybe that, that was the motivator was, you know, dealing with the East Coast. If I'm dealing with the East Coast, you know, uh, 6 a.m. here is 9 a.m. there. Yeah. Or if I'm dealing with, you know, Europe or something like that. So it's just always easier for me to start early. And then as I started to have a family, that was the other part is when I leave for work is irrelevant if it's anything before, let's say, 7 a.m. Because everybody could be asleep. Yeah. 
So why not make it uh, leave for work at 5 a.m. or 4.30 or whatever it might be? Because it, that doesn't really matter because they're all asleep anyway. Yeah. The point is, when can you come home? And if I were to leave at, let's say, you know, 7 a.m. and get home at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m., then that's late in the day for kids. And they might be already going to bed. Yeah. So try to shift it, to shift everything forward. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, okay. Let's see. So then you're, so you try to get home by what, like. Nowadays I try to get home by five or six. It's the best I can do. Maybe by five. Got you. Got you. I think there's something to be said as you, you know, is there, there's a, you know, as I get older and what I do, um, you know, one, while I appreciate the Kobe comment, yeah. he is the goat and I'm no Kobe. Yeah. Uh, I wish he was here. You're the, um, goat. You're the goat of CFOs, Artie. No, no, no. <laughs> no, there's a lot more of those out there. Um, is, you know, you try to just put life in a perspective. And, and, you know, who I am today isn't the same person who I was a year ago or two or three years ago. So I think it's, it's, it, it is... <laughs> It's kind of like you go through these transitions in your life, kind of like I'm sure when you, before you had kids, people said, or when you first had kids, oh man, enjoy it because time's going to go fast. And you don't quite understand what that means. We say, okay, well, yeah, I'm sure it will until it does. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, wait, school now and this and this and this, you snap your fingers, even though, you know, Einstein told us that time's immutable and it is. It's going to go at its own pace and you can't do anything about it unless you can control gravity or something. I don't know. But it seems to go much quicker the older you get. Yeah. Yeah. One of the comments you made to me when um, when you bought the condo mm-hmm. was you're trying to dilate time. Yep. Trying to slow it down. Trying to slow it down. Can you explain that? That was like yeah. that, that, that stuck with me, but I don't even know if I fully comprehended that. Yeah, so the older I get, and the, I just recognize more that that time, you know, you, you blink and a year's gone by, or you realize that maybe things are that things can change so quickly that at times you want to just sit back and then just enjoy and absorb your environment and enjoy if it might be your your family, it might be just taking that time to appreciate. You know, it, it, I'll give you a good example about, well, let me, let me kind of keep going on the, on the whole concept of time dilation. It, it's just a, a matter of just slowing things down. And I know, like I said before, you can't, but you really can if you do it between people or between you and nature or something else, where you can just sit back and appreciate what's around you. By doing that, you're dilating time. You're slowing things down. You're taking a pause to say, this is beautiful. Beautiful might be your wife, it might be a pet, your son, your daughter, the environment, whatever it might be. You're just slowing down to appreciate and recognize something around you. And that's what I try to do. The condo that, that you sold us, I just looked at the ocean and said, this, this slows down time for me yeah. to really appreciate what that is. Got you, got you. But let me throw you a curveball. Okay, all right. You, you like that? Okay. <laughs> I had some friends over at the condo last night, and I was telling one of them about, you know, again, I remember I said that you, know, you constantly change in your life, and it's not just static. And, and that would be one thing that, one of many things that I would tell people is, you know, recognize that you, 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 life is dynamic and it changes. And you don't have to do the same thing all the time, every time, right? 
And I was explaining to him about that same concept. And what I explained to him was something like this. If you look at the ocean, you look at the mountains, you look at the valley, you look whatever it might be, you look at your family, you know in your heart that that has beauty, right? So I can look at the ocean and I can yearn for it, right? Nobody ever taught me that. I know it inside of me, right? Yeah. You can go look at the mountains and say, wow, those are beautiful. Yeah. Nobody taught you that. That's right. However, society has taught you that maybe you need a fancy car. Society has taught you that you should wear a certain watch or shirt or whatever it might be. And I'm not here to say society is misguided. What I'm here to say is, is you think about consumption, think about also about those things that nobody had to teach you are beautiful. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's deep. It is, but it, it's deep, but it all goes back to the whole concept of, of dilating time as well. I can slow down time when I'm looking at something beautiful that I know that nobody taught me is yeah. something beautiful. Because the reality is also, if you, if you look at it from the, of the societal aspect, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Okay, I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is that might feed on itself, right? Well, I have this. <coughs> now I, <coughs> excuse me. Now I need that. <coughs> I need yeah. to add on to it. But when I look at that ocean, I look at those dolphin. I don't need another ocean or another dolphin. Yeah. That's all I need. Yeah. So I think, again, it's just more of, of recognizing the beauty that exists around us. And that doesn't have to be something that is solely for your benefit. You might see a family enjoying their time. Yeah. Any family, doesn't matter who they are, what they are. That is an enjoyment that you can get, right? Yeah. Nobody told you that you have to do that. You know that is good. Yeah. So that, that's just kind of one of the things that is, is, since you brought up the whole concept of time. That's, it. that's really interesting. Because um, you're right. There are certain things that you can just look at and you know it's beautiful and, okay. and <clears throat> no one taught you that. Right. But, you know, I've, I don't know if I've ever thought about that. The fact that there are things in this world that are beautiful that I was not taught. I just right. know it's beautiful, you know. So uh, that's like a, a way of grounding yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. So then... You, you did the BDO side <coughs> Seedman. Seedman thing for yeah. two years. Yep. That's, that's short. It's pretty short, nah, right? Maybe it's three. I don't know. Yeah, it was, it, was a short, it was a short deal. So, and then you went to, to Edelbrock. Yep. And that's also in SoCal. Yep, it's in, here in Southern California, yeah. So, uh, how did that happen? <coughs> how did you make that transition? Uh, they were looking for a controller at the time and, and I really wasn't looking for a job, but while well, I was doing work there, I, and I got that I was I got that audit to go and run because they um, they knew that I had an automotive background, you know, turning wrenches. Yeah, yeah. And the, you know, it, it always makes sense if you're doing something to have an understanding of what the product is. So I'm like, oh heck yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah. And you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, while I was doing the audit, I didn't know they were saying you know this guy might be a candidate for a position they had available. And when the audit was done, signed, sealed, and delivered, then, you know, they, they approached me about a potential opportunity. And, you know, even though I wasn't looking um, at the time, uh, you know, obviously always open opportunity. And, 
I did that. I took that step. Yeah, I mean, there's probably not a lot of guys that have your skill set with the uh, financial stuff, but also, you know, had worked in a garage. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a skill set. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's kind of unique, I think. <clears throat> I, I think um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase that a little bit or maybe characterize it differently, Neil. It's not so much about my skill in turning wrenches. It's my skill in, in humility. I remember working at the garage. <laughs> this is classic. And, you know, I'm sitting there. It's hot. So I go sit in the office in the air conditioning. My dad comes and goes, what are you doing? I go, it's hot outside. He goes, get up and get to work. Do you see anybody else sitting? Yeah. Lesson number one. And then it was, you know, we, we closed at 5 o'clock. It's like 4.55. I'm getting ready to close over roll-up doors. He's like, what are you doing? I go, we're closed at 5. He goes, is it 5 o'clock yet? <laughs> that was number two. And then number three is really humility. And I learned, you know, by observation, the hard work and dedication to the job and to the people and to the customers that came in and the relationships, all of that. Those were the skills that I, even though those aren't taught skills, those are observed yeah. and absorbed. Right. That's what was more important about that, I think, than anything else. Yeah, I, I had the product knowledge. I knew what a cylinder head was in a carburetor and a cam. I knew all that. I knew what they did in a car. Um, but I think if I look back at those times at Pride Automotive, that's what I learned the most. Cool. Yeah, I think that. Um, what am I trying to say here? It's like. You know, trust is the highest form of currency, I feel, you know? Trust. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, when it comes to, when I think about, you know, yeah, I would say trust is, is, is incredibly important. And, and there's, it's interesting as you think about trust, there's actually a mathematical equation for defining trust, which is, um, uh, if you think, I, gosh, I'm, I'm going to forget it, but I think on the numerator, so on the top part of the equation is, you know, your, your, are you, are you credible? Are you, um, which means, you know, you know what you're talking about. Yep. Um, are you, you know, intimate, which means I really care about this. But the denominator is your own self-interest when it comes to trust. So if you think about it, if you was, is, you know, in your job of selling real estate, think about that denominator and think about trust. If you're in it for yourself, I want commission you have a huge denominator, which makes the number very small. You're not trustworthy. Yep. If you have a low self-interest, okay, that means that you're in it for your client. Will your client be happy? That's what I always loved about you. If the decision was, it, you always looked at it through my lens. What is my client happy? Is Arnie and Kathy, are they satisfied with whatever it might be? And if they're not, that's fine. That, that stops there, or being able to look through that lens. If not, if you're pushing me to buy something that I don't need to buy, um, that means that, again, the trust is very, very low. We exactly. don't have that yeah. trust. I'm glad you brought that up. It's really yeah. important. Yeah, my uh, shout-out to my, my coach, my life coach, Paris, P2V. But um, he's really got me working on myself, mm -hmm. constantly trying to improve Myself, because it's like uh, he, he also says the only difference, I guess, um, scientifically between us 
and a uh, pig is like free will. I, I said that really wrong, but basically all the man's problems are, are between his ears. That, that's what he said. It's all mental and yeah. you know, you can really do anything you, you put your mind to. It's, it's training and learning how to work this. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. So then did, when you came home, so you, you, you did the internship then you graduated that year, then you came home straight to BDO Simon, I assume. Yeah, did yeah. you move back in with your parents or did you have your own spot right away? Or what's the story there? I um, Your first home. Tell me about your first home. It was an apartment near Marina Del Rey. Okay. And, <clears throat> or wait, was it? Hold on. I'm not, now I'm not, it's been a long time. <laughs> I think I was living, oh goodness. I think I was living in Marina Del Rey <clears throat> and I just had an old apartment and by myself and then eventually from there, I moved to the Valley. One of the, one of the senior managers uh, in tax, Gary, um, he had a house, and I rented it, uh, one of the rooms from him. Cool. Yeah. It was up in Studio City. All right. And that was, that was at BDO Seedman? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And then, so you lived there probably until you took the job at Edelbrock? Or? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Then did you buy a house at that point yet? or My first house I bought... <clears throat> yes, was at um, when I, I think it was back in '94 uh, in Redondo. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, had you been married to Kathy yet? Nope. Okay, so you bought your first house <clears throat> before yep. you got married. Yep. Cool. Okay. It's a condo. Got it. Oh, interesting. Full circle, kind of. Full circle. Absolutely. Where you are today, with a condo in Redondo. Correct. Correct. Cool. Okay. And so let's see. And that was, that one was a stretch. I mean, that, that was, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah. Do you remember uh, what kind of down payment interest rate you had and all that kind of price price? Yeah. I think it was on the market for two seventy five. Wow. And I think I got it for two fifty because it was going through a, a form of foreclosure. Okay. And, um, it was a stretch because and I, I remember, you know, I, I forget the interest rate and all that, but I remember the, the payment and every, where I was in my, at my life at that time, I was uh, barely, barely making ends meet. Really? That, oh, psh, big time. Even with, uh, you mean, I would say you had a pretty good job. I had a really good job, but. What were you doing with all your money, Artie? I don't know. <laughs> I was, it was in a house payment. Gotcha. That's really what it was. And, you know, I pride myself back then, back in that day of eating a dinner on $2. Got you. And, and just trying to find ways, or I could get noodles and sauce for 99 cents. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I did. It took me the better part of a couple of years to get kind of stable with the house payment and what I had to put down and all that kind of stuff and really, you know, do that on my own. So your first house you said was like 92? I think 90, no. 94. 94? Yeah, 94, 90, yeah, right around then. So let's see here. The average interest rate in 94 was 8.38%. Yeah, so it was a lot back then. Yeah, so that's a lot more than it is today. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so then at what point do you meet Kathy in all this? 96. Five Artie's beautiful wife, Kathy. Shout out to Kathy. Shout out to Kathy, my better half. 
Um, I think we met, we're married in 97, so I think we met in 95. Okay. We met at my nephew's baptism. And yeah, I, mean, we, I think we met probably around, yeah, 90, no, <clears throat> it was probably 94 when we met. Yeah, it was probably the 94 era there. Yeah. Do you remember your first date? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I knew I you would. I do. Tell me just real quick about it. You don't mind. We went to the mall in Newport Beach. What's that outdoor mall there? That one. Fashion Island? Fashion Island. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Yeah, we went. It was fun. Dinner? Dinner. Yep. Yep. She, uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I was, I remember that day I was fishing with my brothers. We had a fishing boat. Nice. We're out fishing and, uh, yeah, got back that night. We went on a date. Cool. Cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you are at Edelbrock as a controller. After how many years you become CFO? I think it was, um, I think it was after maybe two or three years. We had gone public. So I was active in taking the company public, being a part of that team to take them public. And then I was promoted to, to VP finance and CFO. And then I was at Edelbrock a total of 16 years, and I had various positions there. Um, I, I did a little stint in engineering, um, kind of leading that organ- that part of the, uh, the organization. And then my last position there was vice chairman, and that was at, you know, for maybe the last year that I was there. Okay, and then you go to CRL, CR Lawrence. Correct, yeah. And uh, after 16 years. Correct. So that yeah. was like 2011. Nine, uh, yeah, sounds about right. Cool. So yeah. how did how did that happen? How did you end up there? Well, when I went to BDO Seedman back in 1989, because right now I'll, I'll say this is kind of an interesting story. I was um, in '89. I had a client called Cleveland Wrecking Company in Vernon, California, which is where CRL is. Um, on that job, I was a you know brand new staff. And I, I met a guy named Lloyd Talbert, who was the senior. And Lloyd really became my mentor. Um, the guy is incredibly bright. He's probably, you know, one of the smartest guys that I know. Uh, incredibly bright. Um, and maybe, you know, a lot of what I do and how I model my view on in business is probably modeled after him. Gotcha. Just through osmosis and observing. Yeah. Um. And, you know, I'm the kind of person that when I meet someone and we become friends, um, I like to stay in touch. Yeah. Even if it's a hello or something. And, and, and that isn't because I um, want something out of it. Just because, you know, I think that's that connection um, between people, right? So Lloyd and I, we get together maybe once a year or a couple times a year, whatever it might be. And I remember I was at a point at Edelbrock after 16 years where I was ready to kind of make that last move in my career. Um, there were some changes going on at, at Edelbrock, which were all very positive. It wasn't, but I just felt for me, I needed to um, basically step off that treadmill and get on another one. I remember that. I remember thinking that back then. I don't know really why or how that's relevant. Uh, so I was having lunch at the Proud Bird with, with Lloyd. And he had just been promoted to president, so they needed a CFO. And 
I just told him that I was passively looking to take that next step in my take that last step in my career. And it was a perfect timing. He goes, uh oh, let me let me get back to you. We might have something. And uh, there was an opportunity uh, at CRL, and that's how I started there. Okay, so that opportunity came through basically your own networking. It's not like you yeah. got headhunted for that or no, something like that. No, it was that. just through my own network. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and that was, yeah, and it was it was an interesting time to start because let's say I started in January of nine. I mean, I think it was like right after, just a few months after Lehman had filed, you know, bankruptcy and closed their doors, and it was like the worst part of the recession. And I was starting yeah. a new job, new career, <laughs> new direction. Well, I mean, uh, CRL, though, I'm sure you knew was on solid footing and yeah. you, know, you had secure job security and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know that I had job security, but I knew they were on solid footing. I looked at the financial statements. I felt very comfortable with the business. Um, look, when it comes to job security, the way I look at it is, uh, the way I've always looked at, at jobs is, you know, you talk about that, that first 90 days where you're on that evaluation thing, you know, your probationary period. I think I'm like that every day. That's how the, my approach is, <laughs> right? So you never get comfortable yeah. with, you know, yeah, I've got total job security. And you, you don't, right? Um, so I felt, but I felt comfortable in the corporate culture that I observed and the financial statements that I looked at also. Okay. So then, let's see. So you took the job at CRL, mm -hmm. and then about a year or two after that is when. So when did when did you buy the first house in PV? Oh, real estate. Oh yeah. gosh, uh, I don't know. No, that was uh, that was. I, mean, I know you sold it in uh, 2011, and that's when you we did the concurrent closing. We sold your house, right. and we helped you buy buy a house. In Correct. The same time, yeah, right? yeah. That that was right around that. I, I I don't know when. Gosh, I don't even remember. Neil, was that your first house together with Kathy? Oh or? yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Family planning. We had you know we were, um, you know we needed something and we were thinking about schools and just kind of getting something to be a you know and something really to do together because the Redondo condo. Yeah, that was all my doing. And I wanted something that we could do together and yeah. build together. But I think I think managing managing your portfolio okay. and, and being smart with real estate, I think those all kind of factor in. And being uh, you know understanding and being a, a dedicated investor and being disciplined, I think is really what's important. Nothing that I did in my career put all the chips on the table, other than maybe when I started with that first you know, condo in Redondo Beach back in, you know, 94. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's just been being very disciplined. Um, you know, I've got an interesting concept of money that most people probably don't have. I look at money as time. How much time do you have? Because, again, this is just me being a bit different. If you think about um, what I was saying before, uh, the way I look at it is how much money you have in the bank dictates how much time you have because jobs are never secure. And they really aren't. I mean, today, tomorrow, 
we, we learn that, that life can change quickly. Yes. And it can change quickly f- for reasons that are caused by you, reasons that are caused by external influences, or it could be health, it could be whatever. So I, I, as I came on that, when I, on that path of starting a family and being responsible, how much money I had in the bank dictates how much time that I have. And that really, you know, got me to a point of being a disciplined investor. Because I knew what my, you know, I've heard it referred to as what your God principle is. What's the one thing that you think about more and more and you go after, right? I, and, and how I am wired is I'm wired in such a way that I want to make sure that I can sleep. As I joke to, to people, I sleep on my stomach. I don't sleep on my back. Why do I sleep on my stomach? So the world can kiss my ass, right? <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. I want to sleep on my stomach. Yeah. I don't want to sleep on my back. I don't want to be looking around all the time. And so I wouldn't say that I'm a super baller, but I've just, I've, through, through being disciplined, I just try to have enough time in my investments that I don't have to worry about things as much as, you know, although that doesn't change my desire for success, both financially um, and across the board. It doesn't. Yeah, I find that. with successful people, the money is sort of a symptom of what really drives them. It's not the the driver for yeah. successful people. You know, it just kind of comes with, you know, that yeah. desire to be to to that standard that you set for yourself. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I look at the money as yeah. I, you know, I especially as I get older in life, and I I view you know, kind of where I am now is what am I able to give back? Where am I able to have an impact? And, um, and that's another big fundamental for me is understanding the difference between, I think this is important, you know, another, you know, kind of artyism or thing about, you know, time dilation is understanding the difference between charity and philanthropy, right? People understand charity but charity might be, I've got a lot, I'm going to give you some because you need some. That's charity. I don't like charity. Philanthropy is a Greek word, love of people, right? Yep. So in, you don't give until it hurts. That's wrong. You give until it feels good. And what feels good for you? And, and, it, and whatever that you might do, within your family, within society, for your church or your, or, or whatever, you know, faith that you might be, do it until you feel good. And what impact are you going to have uh, that, that you can have that makes, makes the most sense? Got you, got you. So investment-wise, real estate-wise versus stock-wise, I mean, I'm sure you, you know, you've had, you have 401ks and stuff just yeah. from starting at the beginning. Yeah. And along the way, did you make real estate investments besides like the homes you live in? Like, did you ever buy like income properties or try to do flips or, you know, anything like that? I never did the flips because in order to do the flips, yeah, that takes time. And it would take me away from my business that I I do now. Yeah. Um, So, um, but I, 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 part of the reason of buying real estate, you know, even through you with other homes and what it, it was to diversify my portfolio a little bit, to have that hedge. So it's not all in stocks, bonds and everything else, even within 
my investment portfolio, it is balanced between bonds and stocks. Um, again, disciplined investor. Um, I've always kind of shied away from anything that is too aggressive. What I call Vegas-like, you know, where you're putting a lot of chips on the table and they're subject to chance. Yeah. So that, that's the whole idea of being just very disciplined. Although I do believe and feel, I did it at, at one point uh, in my life for a, a, a few years at least I was in, I did have a, a portfolio of um, a real estate, um, you know, through a limited partnership. And, and that was good. Um, got out of that and just kind of redeployed the, uh, the capital either to personal real estate um, or to, uh, to a, just a regular portfolio of investments, stocks, bonds, et cetera. I, I, my, my feeling on real estate is, at least for me, is I like to do things that I can enjoy. Yeah. And I haven't really cut it over to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manage something. Um, I'm open to that, but maybe not right now. So everything I have, I try to, it, our family, extended family can enjoy. Got you. Are, are you uh, one of those people because you're, you have a financial background and stuff, you manage your own portfolio or do you have? No. Okay. Yeah. I use someone else. And so I, I, but at the same time, even though I have a great investment advisor, um, shout out to Ed Charton. Um, he is also kind of like you to me, an important part of, of my family. Um, he helps not only me, but uh, other parts of my family. And it goes back to trust, Yeah, right? It really goes back to trust. I'm glad you brought that up earlier, Neil. In your, in your career or in your, in your path, I think having people that you trust, I think that, and I'm going to do a quick aside before I go back on, um, on the investments. Um, I think there's a, there's a few key things that are to, to make that I would suggest to people for success. And they're very, very simple in terms of how do you succeed in what you do. Um, but I'm going to go back first to, to the investments. Yes, I'm active. And um, I, because of that curiosity, I learn about where I'm investing in and understanding, you know, kind of what, um, what, where the money's going, what does the fund look like, what is our track record, and I also try to understand, um, you know, I, I use this a lot nowadays, rear view mirror versus windshield. So as I look at lagging indicators, this is how they performed in the past, and then I look at leading indicators, this is how they should be performing in the future, in part because of what they do, and in part because of what's going on in the economy. Okay. How close attention do you, I mean, obviously I'm sure you pay attention to financial news because every, yes. everybody does. Yeah, I do. Where all our retirements are tied to it. So we're yeah. always paying attention to the stock market. How close attention do you pay to news and politics? Uh, that's a good question, right? So um, I, I try to find news that is unbiased on both sides. I try to get to something that's um, more fact-based, which is probably why I gravitate more to financial news because it's more binary as opposed to, you know, a slant one way or the other. Yeah. Um, politics are a bit of a challenge. I, I get just kind of frustrated uh, with politics at times. And, you know, and I laugh because 
you know, a lot of the stuff was started thousands of years ago by my ancestors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you think about a democracy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I kind of follow both, but my, my, the majority of my time is in financial news for sure. Something I'm trying to be better about is paying attention to politics and the news. Cause I feel like with any great organization and essentially this country is an organization of sorts, you know, the, it's only as good as the participation of the people in the organization. Right. You know, and, um, I'll be honest, I, I, Growing up, didn't pay right any maybe attention to that kind of stuff, you know? Right. And so, and now with kids, you know, you worry about the world that they're going to grow up in and all that kind of Correct. stuff, you know? So I'm trying to pay more attention and, and participate more in it, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, anyways, that's why I ask. I'll give you some, I'll give you some advice in that regard that um, that's always helped me. Um, I... You know, I, I think part of the challenge that we've come to as a society is we're too busy judging character than we are judging or listening to the other party. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a conservative, but I have so much um, enjoyment listening to everyone speak. If you're liberal, if you're whatever you are, because I really want to, I'm just curious about what your position is. And they, they talk about, um, a debate, right? And by definition, a debate, in order to have a debate, both sides must be um, open to having their minds changed, Yeah. right? And I got to tell you, my position on things changes all the time. Not stream of consciousness where today I'm this, tomorrow I'm that. Yeah. Um, but by listening, that, when I say listening, I don't mean just hearing. Yeah. Active listening. Yeah. So active listening is really paying attention, understanding what your view is and being empathetic to, okay, this is, and this is the why behind what you're saying. I think we start doing more of that and less of you're this versus that. And I think then the whole issue of politics might sort itself out maybe a little bit better. Maybe. Who knows? I hope so. I, I hate the labels. <laughs> Me too. Conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, because it's like there's so many polarizing issues. Right. You could be a conservative and then on another issue be liberal. And it's like, you know, but because you say you're one or the other, you get all these other right. things put on you, you know? And right. I don't think that's cool or nice. That's just, that's the, that's the downside. Because I think when you're willing to have that kind of debate, an understanding or even conversation or dialogue um, if you can have it across. And, and, and this is a, a model that applies to politics. You know, you can apply it to anything, right? Um, and being able to show respect and give and get respect, I think that that's the key. I think that really is hopefully where we're, where we're going to get to someday. It feels like so. we're getting further and further away from it. <laughs> that, that's what scares me. That's yeah. what scares me. But I got to tell you, I... I don't, I don't, to me, whatever you, however you vote, however you anything, um, I am always curious and just want to understand and learn. And the, I find the more that I'm curious, the more I learn about someone or something, the more perspective I have on really what that is. And um, 
Yeah. And I think hopefully it'll get better, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. So economically, yeah, you know, there's a lot going on. I mean, there's yeah. always a lot going on, but I really feel like right now there's a lot going on compared mm-hmm. to like 2016, you know? Right. Um, we have, you know, inflation is crazy, right? It is. 40 year high. Yeah. Um, you got the Fed cranking up the dial on the interest rates and Correct. it seems like they're just going to keep going for now. Right. Um, jobs are good, right? The jobs mm-hmm. reports, the, the unemployment numbers, all that stuff is good, which is why they're keep cranking up the rate as I understand it. Right. Um, but you know, the, the markets up, the stock market is up and down. It mm-hmm. still seems overall pretty good from where we were pre pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and then we have an election coming up. Right. And then there's wars raging on the other side of the world. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So, like, what, what, what do you feel like? What, what are you doing at CRL? Like, how do you forecast, you know, the business, I guess? And yeah. how do you see things going? Well, you know, when it comes to looking at a business, you, you look at, you know, leading indicators. So there could be. You know, for our business, it could be the architectural building uh, index, uh, the, the, the building index by architects. It could be the Dodge momentum. Or it could be a number of things that you look at that measure kind of what's happening in the economy. Um, so I think each, each industry, is, it, there's certain things that are specific to them. So, uh, but, I, but setting CRL aside, I think the, the broader conversation really is, you know, what's going to happen with the economy and where is it going? Um, and I like to just oversimplify and to say, really, where are we at with consumer confidence? Um, yeah, the, it, it's an interesting time that we're in now because you get almost mixed signals um, in that if you look at the elements of a recession, you know, there's a couple of them that are just different because we might have consumer confidence could be really low right now. Rates are high, inflationary environment, GDP kind of faltering a bit, but GDP because of supply chain challenges, GDP because people are pulling back, and then you've got high interest rates, but then you got super low, right, unemployment. Yeah. So it's just, it, it's an interesting time to kind of be in. And as we look at the Fed in terms of the government, what can the government do to rein in inflation, right? They only really they don't have a lot of tools to do that other than they keep raising rates. And unfortunately, I said this at the beginning of the year, and I, you know, I always said that the Fed always gets it wrong. We always seem to be too aggressive on rates. And, and, but if you think about it, that's not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, when they make those decisions, they don't want to sit there and be too aggressive. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should have raised rates earlier in the year and that could have signaled to consumers, businesses to slow things down, to prevent, you know, a, a cliff. Because the one thing that you don't want to do is all of a sudden confidence gets so low and all of a sudden people say, look, I don't, I don't want to hire anybody. Okay, well, gas is so expensive, I don't want to go on vacation. And then I'll have a cascade effect. So it's a challenge. I wouldn't want to be the Fed trying to sort this out. And, um, but that really is, you get the rates up, it's all of a sudden, wait a minute, I can't afford that house now because yeah. the payment's too high. Yeah. Well, my, you know, I can't afford it. So that might take the person selling it who needs to sell it. Yeah. He or she might have to lower the price. Oh, no, I'm not getting that same amount of money. I'm not going to go out and redeploy that capital. I'm not going to have enough. 
or it could be in the in the stock market case, especially if you look at you look at 2022 as a tale of two halves. If you look at the first half of the year, challenge. Second half of the year, recovery to a point. Uh, it's still choppy. Um, you know, people might say, I'm not ready to retire. I can't retire now. I just lost 20% of my portfolio. Yeah. I got to get back to work. Well, maybe there's not the jobs out there. So it, it really is a challenging time. Although I will say, you know, in my perspective, um, you know, they're, they're Economies do have to pull back because yeah. you can't have this constant consumption. For sure, that's how you get inflation. Yeah, um, but I, I think the fundamentals, um, you know, from what I'm seeing, I, I don't really see a cliff. Hopefully, be more of a softer landing. Cool. Yeah, it's like who who really knows, right? It's um, we had a, a long bull run, I guess you could say, at least for right. for real estate. You know, right. Um, but then there's, you know, some people who are forever optimists, mm-hmm. you know, like my dad was one of those guys. Yeah. It's always optimistic, you right. know, not pessimistic. So, um, well, I think your, your dad definitely, he's, he's a great man and he sees the value of real estate. And as I look at real estate, it really is important to understand. And I think this is important for people in general to understand really, you know, what is it that you're trying to do with the real estate? And I'll give you two examples. One example was that a friend of mine, family friend, good guy, um, came to me at the very beginning of COVID early on and said, hey, Artie, I'm buying this house in, I don't know, Camarillo or something. No, not Camarillo, down south, beautiful home. And he asked my opinion, you know, should I buy it? I'm not sure. It's a bit of a stretch, right? uh, uh, uh. And I'm like, you know, I asked him, I said, okay, what's the purpose of the house? Are you seeking to, because he goes, I think it seems like a little bit of a premium. And I said, are you seeking to hold the property? Or are you going to flip it? Or are you looking at it that you're considering this as an equity? You know, we're going to look at the stock every day. He says, no, no, this is going to be our house. And I, I go, do you like the house? He goes, I love the house. Can you afford the house? I can afford the house. I think you've already made your decision then. You don't need to come to me. I think you've made your decision. Yeah. And I talked to him, you know, not too long ago. And, and, you know, he feels good because that the property, that property has gone up considerably in value. That always makes you feel good. But then I said, does it change your position? Are you going to sell it now? No. But I go, you feel good? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So you really need to understand really, you know, what is it that you're trying to get out of whatever you're trying to do? And the second example is, is, you know, the, our, our little condo in, in, in Redondo. I mean, you know, look, I, we never bought it. as an, we, we bought it in mind to look at it to say at some point we're going to sell it. It's not the forever home. So where we acquire it and where we sell it, there should be an increase in value. And there, and there appears to be, and that's great. But that's not why we bought it. Yeah. We bought it knowing it's going to be a family home for at least, hopefully for 10 years, anywhere north of five, between five and 10 Knowing that, you know, in real estate, generally speaking, you're not going to lose your value. Yeah. But if you want something and it fits what you want to do, either as an investment or as a place for your family to live and, 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 and grow, go for it. That's like the exact conversation I have with, with buyers, mm-hmm. you know, um, because like you said, over time, real estate doesn't lose value. Correct. You know, it usually goes up and to the right, especially around here in the South Bay. Yeah. You like it, you can afford it. Right. 
you know, the price at that point is, is it's fair market value, you know, right. 5% plus or minus in 10 years is not going to make a difference. Right. You know, so, uh, cool. cool. And I think the other part of that too is money depreciates over time. So you look at the, you know, and that was at least part of my, the, the discipline that I went through back in 94 is saying, yeah, this payment looks like, you know, at the time it's killing me. Yeah. But it depreciated over time. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to swallow in the future. Then you can refi too. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's all I got for you, Artie. That's good. That's good. Good stuff. Yeah. Thank you for, for agreeing to do this. I wouldn't pass it up. <laughs> cool. I appreciate that. Well, uh, you know, you were my first client ever, first I, sale. Yeah. And um, I heard about the rap songs that you guys did at home. Your yeah. dad told me. He did? He did. <laughs> At a wedding, uh, was it? Might have been your wedding. Oh, it was actually it was at your wedding. Okay, yeah. yep. So uh, we made a lot of music, or rather, my my brother made a lot yeah. of music, and I supported him through that process. Um, and we never released any music, or we did mm. a, a little bit, but we made a lot more than we we released. And so, um, in doing this podcast it felt like a good opportunity to release at least yeah. one song, you know, so nice. I'm using it as my intro. Nice. Nice. And, uh, hopefully we, we can release some more. It's original content. I look at it like, um, well, for one, I, I love the, the art form. Yeah. I, I love hip hop. I love everything yeah. about it. And that ins- inspires me. Good. But also now that we have these original creative works, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of look at it as a challenge to, uh, release it and mm-hmm. promote it and mm-hmm. to sort of make it viable in a way. Like, you right. know, it, right. I, that's like a little fun challenge for me Good to see, you yeah. know, what we can do with that. So um, I look forward to, to doing that. Well, I got to tell you, Neil, from, from the, you know, our family's perspective, we've always appreciated you and everything that you've done for us. And, and, and I, I know this is, I don't want it to sound like a plug, but you've always been a good, you know, business partner and, and family partner to us. And um, you've made the acquisition of real estate. It, it, I, I'm going to go back to what I said into what you said about trust. And I really think more so than really, you know, and one of the few people that, you know, I, I mentioned a shout out to Ed on my investments and you on real estate is being able to see things through our eyes and what's important to us. And that is that foundation that, that creates that foundation of trust. Um, so looking forward to doing more with you. Heck yeah. Well, thank you, Artie. Those are kind words and it, it means a lot coming from you and, and Kathy and uh, Sonam and I love you guys too. We, we really do look up to you guys and um, it's been awesome to, to, to have that friendship and yeah. see your family grow and stuff, you know, And yeah, I look forward to hopefully doing some more deals. We will. Good. Cool. All right. Thanks, Artie. Thank you, Brent.